Hi, I'm Michael. Welcome to Beyond the Screenplay. In this episode, we'll be exploring the film The Devil Wears Prada. Today, I'm joined by the Lessons from the Screenplay team, writer Trisha Orand. Hi, Michael. Writer Brian Bittner. Hello. And editor Alex Calleros. Hi. Uh, so in the video that we released on The Devil Wears Prada, it was sort of all focused on the first 10 pages and why the film is so good at uh, quickly and concisely setting up the story in those first 10 pages. Trisha, you were the first one to bring this to my attention. Mm -hmm. So why did you want to talk about The Devil Wears Prada? Well, we were looking for a really focused topic. Uh, as I recall, we were just like, what's something that we can like zero in on about a film? So we're not trying to like sometimes it's a little bit of it's a little complicated to pare down everything you love about a movie and or like everything a movie does well into like one video. So I, for some reason, the opening like montage or sort of three sequences of this film have really stuck with me over the years. You know, it came out in 2006 and I'm sure I saw it then. And I know I've seen it a number of times since then, but I just remember thinking like, this is such smart writing. It gets so quickly to the point. It like gets to the inciting incident so quickly and just introduces the characters really well. I just was super impressed with the screenplay. And then, you know, it's not exactly... I like that it isn't exactly something that's been done to death, you know? Mm -hmm. I think as I think we as film nerds sort of come back to the same movies over and over again, or we like want to talk about the same movies over and over. And I was like, I don't get to talk about this movie with anybody, but it's really, really well written. Uh, so yeah, that also attracted me to it. I was like, it's a little out of left field, but it's great. Yeah. No, I, I remember you mentioning it to me, and I think it was in the middle of working on some other video. And so I was like, wait, what? The Devil Wears Prada? Okay, sure, well, whatever. And then you kind of like went off and did a bunch of work on it and came back and you were like, here's an outline for it. And I was like, okay, wait, we're doing the Devil... Okay, wait. <laughs> and then you went off and then you just came back with the script and it was like, oh, okay, I guess we're looking at the first 10 pages and like, are they good? I don't really remember the film. But then oh, once yeah. I finally sat down and watched it, I was like, oh yeah, the first 10 minutes are extremely efficient uh, and have a lot of really useful techniques that people can learn from and apply to their writing. Yeah, absolutely. And I also, especially the technique of contrast or like comparison and contrast mm -hmm. with characters that aren't even really characters, right? Like, so, you know, they're setting it up where you see Andy getting ready and all these other women getting ready. And those women never become characters, really. Like, it doesn't actually matter. It's They're really just there to showcase how Andy has this completely different value system. And I was like, I don't think I've ever seen that before in an opening sequence in quite this way. And it it's, works really, really well. Um, I don't know. Did you guys go back and watch it, like, after we started working on this video? Yeah, I, I, watched, I watched the full movie. Yeah. I was really impressed because I, I had read the script you wrote for um the episode mm -hmm. and i watched the first 10 minutes just to prepare for editing it and it was like wow this is like one of the best examples i have seen of that idea of like it's you know i always kind of rebel against those page count things of like by page mm -hmm. and you got to grab the thing and, yeah but it's like oh but this one like really does it and does it like hard like you have all the things you want you get all the supporting characters you get the introduction of miranda you get the first kind of big interaction with her and andy it's really satisfying. And I feel like, yeah. So I watching the first 10 minutes again, I'm like, oh, wow, this is really good. So I was I was surprised. I had a very hazy memory of it from 2006. Yeah. <laughs> and I was impressed by the first 10 pages. Yeah, I agree. I, I think the thing is, like, you don't want your first 10 pages to feel formulaic, mm -hmm. right? Or, like, that you are just trying to, like, check a bunch of boxes or something like that. Um, and I think that carrying those two things of, like, oh, we have to introduce the protagonist. There's got to be some, like clear characterization here, some conflict, some action, like getting all of those things in there without feeling like you're just shoehorning them in is sometimes really tricky. Um, and so the techniques that she utilizes, you know, we talk about comparison and like people's reactions and stuff like that. Yeah, it just, it's yeah. great. <laughs> I mean, one of the things I like, I'm, I was impressed by how, you know, in the first page using that comparison technique it really does set up like what we need to know about Andy and it's sort of doing Brian what we kind of looked at in Shaun of the Dead where it's defining the character by who they're not mm -hmm. uh, and just yeah using the characters around them to define them and that was just when I was watching it and reading it I was like oh yeah we talked about that in Shaun of the Dead too mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it was. It's funny. Uh, the difference between sort of the screenwriting and the filmmaking aspect of of Devil Wears Prada too, where it's easy sometimes to turn your brain off and like kind of like intro, like opening credits or like montages mm-hmm. or whatever. So it's like if you're watching, it's just like oh, suddenly I see, and you're like you're just like <laughs> yeah. you're watching some stuff happening, and you're not necessarily thinking about it. But then when you read the script, yeah. it's like here are these very specific descriptions of everything that's happening. You know, like her um, putting her. Uh, her journal uh, her articles into her portfolio like that's like maybe two seconds of the mm-hmm. of it, you know but when you're reading it's like she very carefully takes these things and puts it in um and that's obviously it's hard it doesn't mean it's bad filmmaking that they didn't translate every single thing but it just means that sometimes when you do read a script you really you really learn some things that you didn't really notice about the movie before right i think when i first saw it i was kind of in that more like it's like a Grey's anatomy episode here's like you know this <laughs> song that we've heard a bunch and it's you know pretty things happening on screen mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it, i appreciated it a lot more yeah having read trisha's script and reading the first 10 pages of the actual script it was like oh this is actually doing something it's not just visuals to put credits over it's it's really yeah, doing something right when what i like also is that it and it's establishing the character of the protagonist it's not you know, we're not learning everything about Andy. Like, it's not right. we need to know her whole backstory and, like, all this stuff. It's it's very focused on, in this world, this is a story about people that care about fashion and people that don't. And Andy doesn't. She cares about this other thing. And it's just very simple. But, like, that's all we need to know in order to get invested in the story. And I think that was something that resonated with me where I feel like sometimes I'm kind of overwhelmed with like but how do you set up all the things about the protagonist and mm-hmm. you know you want the audience to know everything but you know for this for the beginning of the story all we need to know is that andy doesn't care about fashion she cares about this other thing right it's sort of buried exposition you know it's mm-hmm. not her calling her sister and being like well as your sister you know i'd advise you against it you're <laughs> right. going for a, right. a job in the fashion industry because as you know you don't you know <laughs> right. that. it's like here's andy and here's these other women they are different you know yeah yeah exactly and one thing that i wrote about in the original draft of the script about this movie uh was the value system of the world, basically. Because the thing is, I feel like not a lot of people who probably saw this movie had a ton of working knowledge about the fashion industry or like even what what fashion is. You know, there's that hilarious scene where she's like, okay, can you spell Gabbana, please? Right? <laughs> and it's just like, I think that was would have been the reaction of a lot of people in the movie theater. Like, okay, you know, we we see these labels sometimes in the store, but not a lot of us are dropping $2,000 on a pair of shoes. So it's a world with a very specific construction and value system that if you're not familiar with it, you know, could be disorienting. And so the fact that the film is able to both like introduce it to you through Andy, but then through all of these other women that they're being compared to. It's like, oh, this is the way that normal people in fashion act, right? right. And, and so just one is not enough. You have to have three or four of them or whatever to establish that that's normal in this world. Mm-hmm. And Andy's outside of this world or outside of this value system in a very specific way. Yeah. That was actually a challenge working on the video for me because I feel like I... I was one of those people, like, I don't know fashion well. And I, like, got from watching the film, like, okay. But you're so stylish, Michael. Oh, yes. (laughs) I'm so stylish. (laughs) Um, But that's why uh, having my mom read the scripts has been helpful. Because she, in the most, I think in the final edit of the video, she gave a note saying, like, uh, the shot of her, like, shoes coming out of the car is not being used for its optimum (laughs) potential. Because, like those shoes matter and they help establish her character and I was like oh those aren't just like target shoes okay right. I guess that no, matters they're Prada and, <laughs> she wears Prada, Prada. Yeah. Yeah. Prada yeah. right and so it's like that should be obvious I guess but that's how outside of that world I am right I feel like there's like, a lot of like signifiers in the movie that go over my head where it's like sure. it's like you know this image of this is like really big deal I'm like oh okay it's clothing <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah yeah it's, it's interesting yeah. to think about how like you know because our friend Jordan is a huge fan of it you know she was talking about how it's like one of her favorite movies and i but i feel like she's very plugged into like fashion and style Mm -hmm. and all these and there's so much more she probably gets from this movie than i do as somebody so outside that world right right well but when we were working on the the script michael we were talking about um basically that like even if these signals or these like you know close-up shots on like her bag and her shoes whatever even if they don't mean anything to you necessarily the fact that they're being highlighted in the script and then therefore in like the filmmaking 
tells you they're important to the character. Right. right. Yeah. So, sure. right, that in itself tells you something really, really, like, this character dresses herself meticulously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She pays attention to every single one of these, like, tiny, tiny details. And so she's exacting. She's going to be, you know, probably very difficult to work with, impossible to please, all of those things, by highlighting, like, you know, the character herself is cares about all of this so deeply. Uh, it's it's another thing that you can... It's interesting from both a screenwriting and a filmmaking perspective, which, like, we were talking about when we were brainstorming on the screenplay. It's like, you don't have to know what Gucci is to be like, one woman has a Gucci purse, the other woman has a Prada, Prada shoes, Andy is wearing sweatpants. Like, just the yeah, way it's yeah, written, yeah. it's like, you don't need to know that those brands mean something because the script is telling you those brands mean something. Yeah. And then in a filmmaking perspective, it's like, you know, when she walks through the door in slow motion and she's wearing whatever and all the other characters look at her, it's like, you don't have to know whether or not you think right. what she's wearing is fashionable or good or mm-hmm. anything like that. You mm-hmm. need to know that the film is telling you that she has made a change, you know? Right, right, yeah. exactly. And I feel like when we talk about the world of a story, you know, our minds tend to jump to something like, oh, you have to avatar, like you have to build a whole world out of nothing. (laughs) And that's not true at all. You just have to be able to access a world really well and really clearly and give the audience the signals they need to make sense of it from wherever it is that they're sitting. Um, And so like you don't have to invent new rules out of nowhere about flying or whatever. (laughs) All you have to do is like, well, the rule in this office is. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, you know, value system and rules. You know, this is not a podcast about world building yet, (laughs) but like that's what world building is. And doing it really succinctly is so important in the first 10 pages, especially of this script. Mm -hmm. So that was another thing I was attracted to that didn't make it into the video. (laughs) 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 But now you get to voice it. Yeah. Thanks, podcast Michael. is for. Yeah, I we thought having a podcast would mean that you, you know, would be happy about you get a chance to talk to it. But no, he just still. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm Alex, you've been wanting to say something. I just wanted to say that um, one of my favorite parts of the movie actually is not in the first ten pages, but it's pretty early on. Is that whole speech from Meryl Streep about the color the cerulean, cerulean sweater? Spe- yeah. Yes, that stuck yeah. with me from the very first time I saw it because I think that is such a great. I don't know. It feels like that's like the whole movie right there. Yeah, is mm-hmm. how. Um, her world is that fashion is not important. There's real things like journalism that like are real in the world and matter. And this is all just frivolous. And I just love that moment of Meryl Streep, like at her full power, like mm-hmm. putting her in her place with mm-hmm. like a truth of what this world means and is, and actually how it is important in this, this weird way. Well, you know? yeah. Um, so that's, that scene was like originally very, very short in the screenplay. Mm. And it was after Meryl Streep got cast that she kind of like latched onto it and was like, no, this is the moment that we need. And so they had, I know (laughs) some of the best moments in it are kind of just Meryl, but like she latched onto that and was like, we need to, for her to explain why fashion matters. Yes. Um, And so like they had Aline Brush McKenna, like keep writing that monologue longer and longer basically. Um, And then, and you know, it eventually, I don't even know how long it is in the script but it eventually was like super long and Aline Brush McKenna was like they're gonna cut half of this like but every word that she ended up writing is in the film and like I mean you give it to Meryl yeah. Streep I know yeah, yeah. Like, done, it's done. kind of cheating yeah yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly so but yeah no it is it's that it captures that exactness and the passion behind it and it just kind of hooks you I think it's also smart that Andy you know, as sort of the audience surrogate is also someone that doesn't know about fashion because I feel like it makes it safer right. for us to go buy into the story where it's like, well, she doesn't know this either. So I don't feel stupid. Like, it's not like I'm the only person in the story that doesn't know what's going on. Well, it's the classic, like, uh, yeah, audience surrogate fish out of water thing. Yeah. Which is always great. Yeah. And I feel like that the, the whole sequence, I think, is just tailored so well to be, yeah, overwhelming in all of that new information. Mm-hmm. But, like, that's also what's kind of funny about it. Like... It's as funny to her, like if she doesn't know what a Gabon difference, how to spell Gucci or whatever, mm-hmm. like, yeah, just the absurdity of how seriously everyone takes it, like as funny and weird as it seems to me, it also seems to the character, which I think increases that empathetic connection. Yeah. Well, it signals to us like what the stakes are, right? Mm-hmm. Because you have that sense of like everyone's had that crappy job where you're just like, I don't know why I should care about answering these phones in the exact way that you want me to. Uh, Does it really matter? Um, And then when you're able to like sort of, you know, either you quit that job 
because you never are able to access why that thing matters, or you then somehow gain access to actual stakes, or you start to internalize whatever those stakes are. Mm -hmm. And so this movie really brilliantly gets at that thing, which is like, either you're going to buy into this job and therefore buy into the stress and like the, the craziness of it and actually commit yourself to doing it and doing it well, or you're just going to quit and fail. And so that commitment to like Andy ends up having to basically commit to it and fail, which, as you said, is sort of a like a microcosm that sort of takes place right there in the opening Mm. showdown, Mm -hmm. if you can put it that way. I think, yeah, I think it's an important thing about her character that, you know, you always have that movie where you watch and you're like, but just leave. Just don't do that. Just don't Mm -hmm. be in that relationship. Just whatever. And with her character, it's yeah, she needs a job. And yes, you know, she knows that the stakes are if she works there a year, she can get whatever job she wants. But I think the important thing is that she wants to show, prove to herself that she can do it and prove to the yeah. world that yes. she can do it. Yeah. And that's what makes her character relatable. It's not just, ooh, this is the only job in the world or this is whatever. It's, no, I feel like I'm in over my head, but I want to be and I want to prove myself. So it's like you're rooting for her on that level, not in a, oh, great, you'll get this you know, fancy job and then you'll get another fancy job. Good for you. You know, it's yeah, like, yeah, no, yeah. you are proving mm-hmm. something to yourself. Yeah. And it, she talks about that too. Like, you know, a little bit later, she's like, I just can't let Miranda get to me. And so that's like sort of her whole in the first in the first act. It's all I can't let Miranda get to me. And then it's like, but if I don't buy into it a little, if I don't actually commit to it, then I'm just going to fail. Fail. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So then you're you end up you end up in that tension of like you don't want her to be emotionally as well as physically abused by right. Miranda, which she definitely is the whole movie. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. just what, just looking at those shoes makes my feet hurt. Like it's just, <laughs> um, and then like, you know, getting dragged around by her enormous dog or whatever. But yeah, it's like you, that tension of, I, it's about me not disappointing myself. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to like, I have to care. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's actually a really relatable story in a lot of ways. Yeah. It's very broad in that way of like, like I've had jobs before where I'm really not into the thing I'm editing or the thing that I'm working on, but it's actually worse if I kind of am half, you know, half assing it and kind of like one foot in, one foot out. Like it's a more miserable experience than just be like, I believe in this stupid thing that I'm editing <laughs> so hard and I'm going to like make it so amazing, even though I don't believe in it. Mm-hmm. somehow yeah. somehow it like makes it's, it's a happier experience definitely so you can you, you can understand her character how even though she's like her life falling apart there's some there is some satisfaction in committing a hundred percent to even the worst job yeah so it's a weird human experience that the movie actually captures mm-hmm. better than any other movie about the subject so you give yourself yeah. a makeover whenever you have to edit something that you don't want to <laughs> <Yeah>. do <laughs> i call stanley tucci <laughs> yes <laughs> he dresses me when I feel like it's it's also yeah just that much more impressive that it's done in those first ten pages. Like I think that's totally like I feel like everything we're talking about is there in those ten pages. And what was also interesting is looking at the final script, how much they cut from those first ten pages. Mm-hmm. Like the almost the entire second page, uh, and then like half a page somewhere else was cut. So it's really like seven and a half or eight pages basically yeah. that it's all done in um which is really impressive well and actually i was reading about um like the production and, and promotion of the movie and everything and actually their first trailer that they cut was just from those first few minutes and really most of that first like for festivals and and stuff like that their teaser trailer was just the scene between miranda and andy in the office that showdown scene and they were using it they just wanted to use it for like you know, like little promotional stuff on the road and whatever. And then it was so like it piqued people's interest so much. It's such a good like hook into the movie that they ended up structuring the whole like long theatrical trailer around that. So if you watch the theatrical trailer, it's pretty much that pieces of that showdown and then like intercut from a couple moments later. But it really is centered on that moment because it's so well set up and it's so fascinating the the clash of these two characters yeah it's great That's, i feel like most trailers should just be like the first like 10 yes minutes. please, exactly please. Yeah. <laughs> don't show me the ending my I god like i always think of the wally teaser trailer which was i think the first one i saw where i was kind of like cognizant of like oh this is like literally just the very like the first act and nothing past that like i there's enough to establish like what wally's 
problem is and the world he lives in and what he wants and then something crazy happens and now i want to know what happens after that but yeah. i don't know what happens and like they don't show the space or any of you know eve like i don't know it's not like when you watch a movie in the theater like an action movie and you're just you're just like well they haven't gotten to the uh the blue building yet so right. that character's not gonna die right, right now <laughs> like, drives me crazy. yeah it's really bad yeah, yeah. I don't know why anyone. Why don't they ask us? I, mean, I know we could just cut everybody's trailers. Exactly. <laughs> we'll get Alex fun. to do it. It'll be perfect. I would love to. Yeah. If you're anything like me, you love diving deeper into subjects that interest you, which is why I'm excited to say that this episode of Beyond the Screenplay is brought to you by Curiosity Stream. Curiosity Stream is a subscription streaming service that offers over 2,000 documentaries and nonfiction titles from some of the world's best filmmakers. I've become transfixed by David Attenborough's Light on Earth documentary, which is all about how and why some animals produce their own light. It is fascinating and features some absolutely gorgeous images of bioluminescent creatures. I highly recommend you check it out. Curiosity Stream is available worldwide and on many platforms, including Apple TV, Roku, Android, Xbox One, iOS, Chromecast, Amazon Kindle, and more. You can get unlimited access starting at just $2.99 a month. And for our Beyond the Screenplay audience, the first 30 days are completely free if you sign up at curiositystream.com screenplay and use the promo code screenplay during the sign-up process. Once again, that's curiositystream.com screenplay. Thanks to CuriosityStream for sponsoring this episode. Speaking of the first 10 pages, I feel like that part of the movie maybe my favorite part of the movie and i a lot of the a lot of the first act that follows and, and into the second act and part of that is the tone like i feel like the tone of the first half of the movie or the first third of the movie is really fun and you you feel like you want to get to know the characters better i'm like i love stanley tucci i love all this whole world and there's something interesting where the movie takes a turn somewhere in the middle where it becomes just kind of like dark and a little gloomy and kind of like her life is just falling apart and everything's kind of stressful and things you know emily blunts in the hospital and I, it was yeah. it was a weird thing where it's like i i i wanted more of that first part of the movie that energy even if it you know has to get bad for the protagonist but like some of that fun to continue through and it was it was kind of i think it reminded me watching it again about my first experience in the theater where you know i liked the movie at the beginning i'm like oh i love meryl streep this is awesome and then somewhere by the end i was kind of it kind of lost me like i, I liked where it ended up and i like how it concludes but it, there's something with the fun that is so inherent in those first 10 pages all those all those walking shots where Emily Blunt is you know saying everything so fast and Miranda comes in and she's giving overwhelming orders and like I, I wanted more of just that energy mm -hmm. and there's something about the movie that kind of starts to peter out for me yeah I mean I, I feel like yeah. it's like almost exactly the midpoint where things like change and like she you know Andy's kind of achieved her first goal of like she's in and she can like do everything now but that's when things turn and start to get bad she becomes Mirandy <laughs> Mirandy yeah. no. I mean she does <laughs> like, no. like like that I mean that's why the second half of the movie is like kind of harder to watch because she becomes what she never wanted to be become you know and then you right. have to watch her like deal with that um also by the way uh I only watched this movie for the first time uh, this year um, Welcome. Yeah. So I, I wanted to watch it when it came out and just never got around to it. And then that never got around to it, it took forever. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when we were talking about doing it, not necessarily doing it, it was like on HBO. And I thought, sure, let's give, let's give it a spin. And then I was, I, I love the movie. I think it's great. But it was about 15 minutes, 20 minutes in when I was like, oh, this is just Mean Girls. Oh. I was like, this is literally just the plot of Mean Girls. You have the like smart, yeah, she becomes... smart person. She comes to this new world. She becomes like becomes part of like the plastics, you know, and then she becomes really good at it. And she becomes awesome at being that. And then she meets this boy who's part of this world. And then that means her like her relationships with her in Mean Girls, her friends, but in uh, in Devil's Potter, her boyfriend, like that falls away. And then she realizes, like, I don't really want to be part of this world. And then she's like, I want to go back to Norway. I was like, this is just and I looked it up. Mean Girls was written. Well, came out in 2004 and was based on a self-help thing that came out in 2002, which means it was written in 2003, the same year Devil Wears Prada, right. the book came out. So I'm not saying one was trying to be the other as much as I was like, I feel like I already know the plot of this movie. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, I'd never had thought about that comparison before. I will say um, this script is a triumph of adaptation. Like for those that have read the book. Oh, right. Because you read the book. Yeah, I yeah. really, I had not read the book. 
Um, and then I read it this week because I was like, I got to see what's really going on here. And the novel is very novelly. And by that, I mean, it wanders a lot. Like mm. there isn't, yes. Well, and it also was, it was Lauren Weisberger's first novel. Um, and it's also based on her true life experiences, which uh, to me, that's one of the most interesting things about the movie actually that is able to be retained from the novel, um, which is that like, there's that sort of like fascination of this is so crazy. It could only be true. Like it has to have really <laughs> mm-hmm. kind of happened like this. And obviously yeah. it is based on Lauren Weisberger's own experiences working for Anna Wintour, which is like, it's a whole other situation. Fashion name. Yeah. Fashion person. name. The editor. It's of a Vogue. documentary the about editor her. Of Vogue. Oh, yeah. yeah, really good. Oh, okay. yeah. Well, the, 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 the documentary about her got a huge boost from this movie of course, because like people yeah. were like, who, what, who is this real, the real version of Miranda? I'm, I'm pretty and, sure I watched the documentary because of Deva Wars. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, everything when, when you read about like how the movie was received and everything, it's like, you can't not read about Anna Wintour and like, mm-hmm. um, or just the whole production filmmaking. Apparently she was threatening designers like not to participate in oh the movie. Gosh. Yeah. Wow. Um, or they just didn't want to, cause they didn't want to, you know, garner her wrath basically. It's like some Orson so, Welles, Citizen Kane style. Yeah, like. no, it is. It's crazy. And, and so like they wanted a bunch of like fashion designers to do cameos as themselves. And a lot of them were like, we can't because, yeah, <laughs> because then we won't be in Vogue anymore. We're holding like, out for Zoolander too. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's kind of a Priorities. plot point in the movie, actually. She yeah. she she flaunts her power of she, you know, she can mm-hmm. take all these people away away from the magazine. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so and it is and then Anna Wintour, of course, like n- Vogue did not review this movie. It did not review the book. It never mentioned it. None of the publications like mentioned this book coming out or anything like that. And and in the reviews of this movie, even newspaper reporters were like, this is based on Weisberger's experiences in New York, working at a magazine. <laughs> Generally. For people <laughs> in fashion. But yeah, um, what was I saying about that beforehand? Something about the book. Oh, the, the book the movie also oh my good. god, the adaptation, the adaptation. Yeah. It's so good because the book really does wander and it doesn't like the the tertiary characters and secondary characters are so different. Like hmm. Aline Brush McKenna's take on this is razor sharp, where like she looked at a novel that that meandered a lot that was clearly based on someone's true life experiences and didn't have a satisfying arc and didn't really have a strong theme. Mm -hmm. And Aline Brush McKenna was like, give me all that. I can turn it into something that is concise enough. I can construct a movie out of this. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, it's just triumphant actually. Like as I was reading the book, not that I wasn't entertained and not that I would ever knock somebody who finished a novel because I certainly (laughs) have not written a novel (laughs) ever in my life. Um, it's certainly not a screenplay and doesn't have the necessary building blocks. And Aline Brush McKenna gives it that in spades. And also Meryl Streep. Like, Meryl Streep managed to look into Miranda's heart and saw a real person in there. And so, like, the scene where Miranda's talking without her makeup on and talking about her Mm -hmm. divorce and everything, which is one of the most compelling scenes in the movie, that was, again, it was written in there, but it was insisted on by Meryl Streep. They're like, Mm -hmm. we can't cut it. It's the heart of who she is it makes yeah. her relatable it forgives her in a lot of ways yeah. which the book does not do for miranda mm. at all oh, interesting yeah. yeah yeah i think that's the that's the other standout scene from yeah. you know from seeing it in theaters so meryl streep she knows yeah she well knows. i feel like in general the casting of this movie is just insanely <laughs> yes. good yeah. like i feel like everyone is just so on point like stanley tucci it's just so much Always. fun. I feel yeah. like forever Delightful. this is the image of Stanley Tucci in my head is right. this movie. Uh-huh. For, yeah. for better or worse for him. But like, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually glad like I didn't see the movie until I loved Emily Blunt. Mm-hmm. You know, because if I had seen it until the sixth right. I'd been like, here's an actress. But now I'm just like, oh my God, Right, it's awesome. weird. Because I didn't, I didn't know her back then. Because I actually, when I saw it, I was like, I don't know who this person is, but like, she's amazing. Yeah. And so I know her from Devil Wears Prada. Right. A lot so of us do. Yeah, excited yeah. to see her pop up. I think when we were, when I was researching stuff for A Quiet Place, when we were working on that, um, at some point, somewhere in, you know, some trivia thing, there's something where John Krasinski's favorite movie to watch is The Devil Wears Prada. Yep. Because he just enjoys watching Emily Blunt. He's seen it like oh, yeah. 80 times. And so adorable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. You told she, me that. Yeah. She's, she's like, I'll, I'll come home and he's watching it. And then he's like, hold on, hold on, hold on. That's my favorite dress. <laughs> well, and then. Why are they so cute? 
Damn and then it. Stanley Tucci married Emily Blunt's sister. Oh, right. Yeah. Which is so weird. Because they met on this movie. Oh, wow. And then she, everyone became such good friends on this movie that she invited them all to her wedding to John Krasinski. And at her wedding, Stanley Tucci met her sister. And now they're related, which wow. is awesome. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. all way too cute. Yeah. I know. Yeah. It's so great. Aggressively charming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, but I mean, and speaking of the characters, Michael, like Nigel is mm. super different in the book. Like he's mm. actually an afterthought in the book. I think he's like in two scenes. He's mm. an over the top, probably problematic stereotype mm. of like a gay man who works in fashion. Um, who's just like all of his dialogue is written in all caps. <laughs> oh my God. In, Jesus. In book. And, and Fabulous then, is every other word. <laughs> it's crazy. And again, it's 2003. So no one was as sensitive as they should have been, but like it, it, to, for, the character of Nigel, as it is written by McKenna, as it is played by Tucci, to come out of that text is just astonishing. And as someone who's adapted a lot in my time, um, it's it's about creating a character that serves the story, that serves the other characters. It's not about just like what would be funny in this scene, right? You can't just fill a scene or a story with characters that you think are entertaining on their own. And this is what we're talking about with Shaun of the Dead. It has to be part of this symbiosis. It has to all flow. The into character web. If the you will. character <laughs> web. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that's what's one of the things when I watched it again, I was struck by and I'd forgotten is that Nigel is like the most tragic character. In Very a right. It's really sad. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's such a reversal because when you meet him, it's like, oh, good. There's like a normal person. Right. I enjoy mm-hmm. being around this. Okay, yeah. good. There's like a safe place. It's all under control for him. Yeah. yeah. And then by the end, it's like, oh, well, this is actually really sad. Like I've. I feel sad for you now. So I feel like, yeah, that that arc is really interesting. I think even more, I think Emily goes on a fun question. Go. <laughs> Do you happen to know, did, was was Emily's character name Emily before they cast Emily yes. Blunt? Yes. So, okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the character in the book is named Emily. Okay. And, but the, some of the other character names are definitely changed. And like I said, certain other characters are like completely different or like lifted out of other areas and brought in here the character of andy's best friend lily is 1000 percent different and she's so much better in the movie in the book she's like a crazy alcoholic and the reason andy has to leave paris is because she gets in a drunken car accident mm-hmm. and it's just exactly yeah your reactions are <laughs> it might all, be like more real life but not on theme so much yeah all yeah, of your reactions are correct which are like that doesn't that doesn't seem like it's about andy's journey at all right, right. yeah um so yeah again like the ability to to serve the story first and for- foremost is where mm-hmm. this really succeeds for me as a screenplay. Yeah. Um, the scene where the scene where Nigel loses that like job opportunity where she like takes it away from him. Mm-hmm. Apparently uh, he asked David Frankel like, Oh, what, what's my expression here? You know, kind of thing. And he's like, Oh, it's just like you were nominated for an Oscar, but they called somebody else's name. And Meryl Streep was like, I can help you with this. <laughs> just like stepped in there. So. Uh, like I've, I'm literally the number one person in the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Has the most experience well, with that. And that happened yeah. to her for this for movie. This movie. <laughs> right. also. That's great. It was like yeah. her 14th like acting yeah, I think nomination. she's been nominated for like 22, but she's won like three. Yeah. <laughs> like it's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Only so. three. Yeah. yeah, well, not, not three is great, but yeah. it's just funny. It's like such a weird percentage. Yeah, yeah. It was weird seeing Trishy mentioned the the her Andy's friend characters, and it was mm-hmm. weird seeing those actors because now I've I've seen them in so many other things. I right, names, they went on to like, be like in a lot of things. Mad Men. Mad the Men. Right, yeah. yeah, the guy from Mad Men who's like always oh, play always plays that guy where it's like. Right. I kind of don't like you, but you seem like you should be nice, and yeah. I just don't know how I'm. Wasn't he also to in love? The uh, Netflix show. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, her ex-boyfriend. God, he's and he and so, yeah. actually he's in, so he's also is elementary. she. I think. Hmm? He's so also is she the one <laughs> <laughs> We're it. just having our own conversations. <laughs> Netflix. Wait, is this a podcast? We're going to split this into two channels, and just you have to <laughs> <Perfect>. <laughs> yeah. left, right. Yeah, no. It, anyway. Well, and that character's not in the book at all. Oh, interesting. No, not hmm. at all. Lily's, like I said, a thousand percent different, and it's like everything you want from an adaptation, which to me is like. The only chance of that happening is for 
the whole creative team to be on board with getting the script to the right place where it needs to be before you go into production. And so Wendy Feinerman and, and David Frankel, who like were, you know, the producer and the director of this film really, really let Aline Brosh McKenna really freely adapt this book. And they worked a lot with her. They had a lot of notes about the character. They wanted Miranda human. They wanted Andy to, you know, to make her own decisions and have her own arc and all of this stuff. And so they worked a lot with McKenna on this and they were very united in that. And I think that when, you know, when we talk about bad screenplays or screenplays that are unsuccessful or or adaptations that the audience ends up being really unhappy with fans, the book or whatever. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, I don't know how fans of the book feel about this movie Quite frankly, it's to me a much better movie than it is a book. So I hope they're happy. Yeah. But normally you get into a situation where you have a dozen screenwriters, a dozen producers, Mm -hmm. so much money that's sunk into it that it just sort of drowns under the weight of its own like pressures. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that there was a lot of faith from the very get go and like, let's get this script great. Let's get Meryl cast. Let's get this movie like exactly in this one vision is is why it's good in my opinion well the the document you had for the video michael was the shooting script pdf they're on the front page there's like it's like 12 lines of like all the different drafts mm-hmm. you know like the recent drafts mm-hmm. and, the, and the dates with all of them so it's like they really put the script through the ringer yeah yeah that's such a weird concept that like when people commit to making the script good the movie is good <laughs> yeah. what are you saying what? yeah and with a single screenwriter and a directing team and yeah not yeah not yeah. a committee of 15 people it's, yeah. a, it's also a funny thing to talk about on a screenwriting podcast is like oh do we talk about or i mean just the channel itself like do we talk about the script that got the attention and got bought and everything like that or we talk about the script that they said this is good enough to make into a movie now you mm-hmm. know it's a and it's, sometimes it's yeah. a huge transition sometimes it's not very much at all but it's just a funny funny thing it's like there's like a, a mid adaptation between like a novel and yeah. a shooting script it's like that the first script you know yeah well that was one of our challenges on a quiet place was yeah the the one script that we had access to was like the script that sold exactly. the movie but yeah. it was completely different from the final film mm. right yeah i mean and it's so hard to talk about in a lot of ways because every movie's journey is so different right right? the inception of the story like who ends up getting involved who ends up getting the movie made like it's a mess (laughs) (laughs) when i read about when i I read about development it like stresses me out it's like wow this what a journey most movies have to go on it's i mean it's probably for the best in a lot of cases but in some cases it sounds just horrible well and i feel like it's also a challenge with the channels like you know what is the final edit of the movie because that's something even with the devil wears prada because there were those two and a half pages or whatever that were cut out it's sort of like well do we talk about those pages if they're missing from the final film because <laughs> they clearly yeah. weren't necessary yeah, they, yeah. to they realized in the, the edit that they, they weren't necessary which is right. very common like i feel like right. we've talked a lot about how you know michael and i talk about how editing really is the final it's like a it's an old-timey adage now but like editing is the final draft of the script because you realize things that you didn't even realize in pre or, or production in post-production you finally see it clearly and you're like oh wow we really don't need this or this actually should be reordered entirely because this is a better experience for the audience well and as a rule it's better to have too much than too little so it's right. like when you're shooting you're gonna leave some of that stuff in the script and and probably be somewhat aware like that might that might go but like let's get it because there's nothing worse than needing something and then not having it in the yeah. edit, as we all know. Well, I've always been amazed in the edit on on our creative projects, how we like use things in ways we weren't anticipating. Yeah. Like a piece of footage that's like not meant for this scene, but it's like, oh my God, we need something here. And this somehow works perfectly, but it was not intended for this at all. And yeah, movie making is weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like so often that behind the scenes stuff is so shrouded from anybody who wasn't immediately involved on it that like there really isn't a a YouTube channel or a podcast or like one book yet that like chronicles a movie's journey or like any, you know, like all the movie's journeys kind of thing. And where it's like, if you as an individual screenwriter worked on something, you probably know the story of how it happened. Or if 
people who have people have talked about it to the press or whatever. Sometimes that story is out. But most of the time, the stories are not out mm -hmm. about where did this script come from? Who wrote it? Who wrote what? Who steered it in this direction? Um, and that's honestly super helpful to up and coming screenwriters um, and young screenwriters. And that's the stuff we so rarely get access to. Yeah, a lot of times it's like you read a script and it's the shooting script, which means it's yeah. been, you know, 10,000 people have looked at it and fixed it and done whatever. And you're like, oh my gosh, how did this screenwriter do this like amazing thing? It's like they didn't do it, that amazing thing. They didn't, they did a thing that was great that was you know or very good that then people saw the potential in and said but if we do all this and this and this and rewrite and then try this and etc cetera, etc cetera, then that can become a great script but it's not it wasn't necessarily great when it started you know um that they just did something that was showed their potential showed the potential of the story i think this is kind of like that the illusion of yeah perfection where there's this idea of like you are the sole screenwriter superhuman entity and you will write the thing and it will be perfect. And if it's not perfect, you're not good enough. Mm -hmm. And you realize, oh, these like massive Hollywood movies, like and these major screenwriters, it's a whole process. It's not they don't just sit down and write the gold and it's just perfect. It's, we have to let, let go of that illusion. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like the whole like, you know, the auteur theory of like, you know, there is a director and that like mm -hmm. the film is the, you know, the director's vision. And it's like we give all the credit to the director as, you know, the author of the whole thing. But it, it is so hard because there's so much collaboration, obviously, if that happens in film. And, and so it, it is interesting when trying to learn, Trisha, sort of what you were saying, when you're trying to learn as an aspiring filmmaker, you know, it's hard to find those sources that tell you how it actually happens and how things get from step A to on a screen because there's so many weird turns and twists and someone comes up with an idea that's great, then you get the credit for it, but should you? And like, I don't yeah. know. Well, sometimes it's kind of political. I feel like there's a reason oh, yeah. we don't hear a lot of times what actually happened because, yeah, I think yeah. sometimes credits are given in ways that aren't accurate to what how it all went down <laughs> michael are you looking at me because you know i have something to say about this yeah uh -huh. yeah i recently got involved in an arbitration and um the movie is current so i can't talk about what it is but i, I got involved in an arbitration on something um and it was like a big studio movie and there were a dozen screenwriters on it and uh the list of arbitration materials you know that you're supposed to read had 27 different scripts on it um like having read quite a lot of them and then like you know like I said it's a it's a modern film I like it's astonishing to me where that script started where it ended and who is getting credit for it um that was the arbitration was to figure out who got the who deserves credit the credit yeah when you have oh. a dozen screenwriters because that's the thing mm -hmm. so the the WGA, like the handbook, basically, that tells you how you're going to be assigned it. The screen credits manual is what it's called. Um, and it was recently rewritten, um, in fairness, after I was involved in this arbitration. But like, it's very subjective. You have three arbiters who are working writers. So they have something like 21 days to read supposedly everything on the list of arbitration materials, which in this case was 27 drafts. 27 drafts, wow. Yeah. And then they're supposed to decide who gets credit and what credit do they get. And, and like, the, you know, story by, screenplay by, you can only give like two credits for each one of those. And so it's just straight bonkers when you... If you don't, again, if you somehow aren't me in this situation or like you or any other movie, literally any other movie I haven't been involved in the arbitration with, it's like you have no idea when you see that little screenplay by on the screen actually what that means. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, I think in the case of The Devil Wears Prada, I know there were three screenwriters before they brought on Aline Brosh McKenna. Mm. Um, and my understanding is that they a lot of what they wrote was kind of just tossed out. Um and so that's why she pretty much has sole credit on this. Mm -hmm. um, and also she, you know, she brought her own person, like personal stories to it. She was as journalist in New York City um, and all that kind of stuff. So she had a take on it. And she was she was the first woman they brought on to work on it as well. Oh, fascinating. Uh -huh. The first three screenwriters were dudes. And then they were like, let's get a lean in here. Um, kind of makes sense. Yeah. All yeah. This logic that they coming into play. stuck with that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, in this case, it seems like 
almost a dream for her. Like, I'm sure it was a lot of work, but she ended up being able to stay on the project. They trusted her to end up writing the last thing. You know, she wrote that every word of that Cerulean sweater uh, speech that's all of it is in the movie. Like, as a screenwriter, that's almost the best kind that you can kind of hope for in a lot of ways. And it's, yeah, it's sad that that's so rare. Like, Mm -hmm. that that's a special thing that happens. And it was in 03. Like, yeah. I don't think you would you could do that anymore, you know, especially with IP being, you know, everyone wants like, what's the book? What are we adapting? Like, oh, is there already a TV show? Is there already a comic book? Is there already a fan base for this? Everyone wants that IP. And so I feel like they would not nearly have as had as much freedom to find a story, the, the story that they found in this book, if they were making it in 2018. She said very cynically. <laughs> <laughs> meaning, meaning like they would have to adhere more to the book to be more like pure. With yeah. The IP. Or Aline Brosh yeah. McKenna would have been replaced three times over maybe. Right. Although maybe not because she's a, a very valuable screenwriter now. So, yeah. but can we get Miranda action figures? <laughs> can we get I some like merchandise? Where your head is at. Nobody yeah. steal that idea. That's our idea. <laughs> like that. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. But yeah, just on that topic of, you know, trying to assign credits when like a dozen people have worked on something. That's just the weird thing about the creative process is, you know, like I recently completed the feature film script. It would not be where it is without loads of feedback and brainstorming with other people, going back and forth with Michael about it. Like, it's like, yeah, I finished writing it and I did the most like labor on it. But like the brain power that was required to make it what it is, is not just my own. But like, it's just my name on it. So I don't know. It's just a weird thing with this, this idea of credits because everything's collaborative. Mo- I mean, unless you're like a painter alone in a cabin. But, you know, most movie related art forms, things are uh, collaborative. So it's it's a very strange thing to try to narrow it down into like this person did this because it's not really accurate. Well, of course. And and like the thing with this arbitration that I was involved in is that you you assign credit sure and everything like that but then you also end up wondering there are all these subtle ways there's all the stuff that goes into it like you were saying so what would be so wrong with creating a credit that's like additional writing by or whatever like it maybe it you know and so I'm certainly not the first person to suggest this you know the WGA has been talking about creating like additional credits essentially that yeah. don't mean any more money for screenwriters but acknowledge the fact that like every single person every all of those 12 screenwriters who did those 27 drafts contributed something so like if you brought somebody a coffee on set you get a credit like <laughs> right so why yeah. would so why would a screenwriter uh who did 15 drafts over three years right. say not get, not get a credit it's, yeah, yeah. That's, that's pretty nuts when you think about like, yeah the pas get credits but not the actual screenwriters right or <laughs> animators in other countries right right get credits and our, our screenwriters are always consistently just and that's that goes back to the earliest days of hollywood right where it's like yeah, why do the, the writers the screenwriters always disposable they do yeah. they are it's like just... the most important part of the process in a lot of ways well we all know that alex <laughs> yeah. but a but lot of people television don't. it's different also it like is, there is truly. more appreciation for the the writer on the television side which is interesting i don't know if it's because it, people associate television at least in the early days with more like theater and like playwriting and so that maybe respect carried over but. well i think television especially on sitcoms and stuff it's just sort of common knowledge that there's a writer's room so when you see that teleplay by one name you're like but no like that person wrote a draft that then like 20 25 people you know put in the blender and eventually came up with something else but it's like that's kind of common knowledge whereas in movies it's not really it's sort of like one person gets one person gets the credit and that's it mm-hmm even if the process was more like a writer's room. Exactly. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, yeah and, and I feel like there's almost like a 
like the myth of a film, I think almost requires that of like, it was like one person wrote the screenplay and one yeah. director and it's like- Sylvester so Stallone locked himself in his basement for a weekend. <laughs> for a rocky. Like, well, it's, it's a very American sacrifice. thing. I think. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like, it's like, yeah, it's that rugged individualist, like this person did it all by themselves. They did it. And, and this is never how it actually works. Yeah. I mean, yeah, partially because we don't let it work that way, right? Well- if there's one thing this whole thing has taught us, it's that if you if you want to be a screenwriter, you should probably also be a director, because that really is the only way to make sure that your words end up on the screen, because Hollywood is not tends not to care about you, the individual screenwriter, unless you're a decision maker in some other way. You can and also just be Aaron Sorkin. Or, or you could be Aaron Sorkin. Sure, sure, sure. Do one of those two things. I mean, or, 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 yeah. or pair yourself you know, creatively with a director who yeah. believes in you and who like trusts you and wants to be a collaborator. Absolutely. You know, that's, that's another way to do it. Yeah. Who will go to bat for you and right. your script. Yeah. yeah. It's, it goes back to the fact that you can't win a Pulitzer for a screenplay. You can win a Pulitzer for literally any other kind of writing, mm. but not for a screenplay. Greeting cards? Because, I mean, let me see your greeting cards, Brian. Like, are They're they pretty good. good. <laughs> oh, snap. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's that whole thing is like screenwriters are not viewed in the public eye as being writers in the same way that like the lofty novelist or poet or playwright is. Um, they're viewed as being a cog in a machine um, and that whatever it is that they're doing is just just serving the final film, which, you know, to some extent is not a crazy viewpoint, but also doesn't help write aspiring screenwriters learn anything about their craft or about the business really well it it didn't didn't help me as a young filmmaker you know a young aspiring filmmaker it's not it was not a good idea in my mind that I wanted to rush through writing my short film as fast as possible to get to the fun part of directing it and making it because then you spend a lot of time making something that could have been a lot better in the writing process so I, I think it's actually a damaging conception of like the script's just there to get to the making of it it's like you know that's where most time should be spent so you don't waste time and money in the production on something that's not worth making absolutely (laughs) (laughs) thanks alex (laughs) um okay cool so uh why don't we wrap up with by kind of going around and saying what are the creative lessons we're going to take away from the devil wears prada but what are the techniques or you know what have you that you guys feel will be useful to put into your own work and i can start with sort of saying sort of like i said at the beginning just the the efficiency of those 10 pages i think uh really made the idea stick in my head that you know there's a lot to set up but if you spend time and really think about it there are ways to do it quickly and it's so much more engaging for an audience to be when there's more than one thing happening at once. And so like, you know, you can use comparison to very quickly set up the very basic things we need to know about the protagonist, but you're also getting to see, as you mentioned, Trisha, the values of the world. Like there's in these first 10 pages, there's so much happening at once. And I think that's always a clear sign of smart, intelligent design in the writing. Smart and intelligent. Yeah. Both. <laughs> both, both of those smart, words. Smart, comma, intelligent. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I feel like that's, that's probably the most valuable takeaway for me is just, yeah, be good. Be good when you're writing. (laughs) Be good. Now go write your screenplay, (laughs) boys and girls. Just be good. That's the lesson for today. Uh, Alex? Um, yeah, I mean, I've already kind of said that the first third of the movie is probably my favorite and... Part of that, I think, is the kind of momentum and the fun and the way it's shot and the way the dialogue is so snappy. And there's something about the kind of the pacing of the first part of the movie that's really just a joy to watch. And then then when it slows down in those like uh, terrifying Meryl Streep moments, it really hits you because you have this kind of like, oh, it's fun. Emily Bunce walking through the hallways and here's Stanley Tucci and he's kind of goofy. And it's you kind of like are in this ride. And then when Meryl Streep comes and she sits down and she calls Andy in and it gets quiet, it has such that such an impact in that moment. And it's just, you know, you just want to watch Meryl Streep forever. Um, so, yeah, I just I, I don't know what lesson that is, but I think it's something to do with um, the way it's shot, the way it's paced, with the way it's cut um, in that first section is just perfect i think and then and then the way it slows down when meryl streep enters 
it has the exact effect that I would want it to have. So and it's like a good ebb and flow. Kind good of ebb and flow. Energy. Yeah. Cause you need yeah. those dynamics. You know, I, what I can't stand is when I see, you know, like a dumb action movie um, that is just, there's no ebb and flow. It's just kind of a constant relentless, like bashing of my face, you know, by the movie. And you just kind of start to like go numb because there's no peaks and valleys. And I think Devil Rose Prada, especially in that, yeah, that first half, the the way I was like carried through the movie, it was just very enjoyable. Absolutely. I think the thing I've internalized uh, just this, you know, the whole experience, because I did a, clearly I did a deep dive into the whole thing, the whole story of it. But I think I've really internalized actually the, in some ways, the message that we were talking about earlier of the film, which is that success at a job requires like commitment and like personal change. Um, which is that like, you know, we all get assignments that we don't care about. Like you were saying, Alex, where it's like, just write this thing, just make this commercial, just do this, whatever, like keep the bread on the table. Um, and that those we succeed at those or we surprise ourselves and create something so much better create, you know, just as artistic creative people applying ourselves, if we actually allow it to touch us and change us, even if it isn't something that we care about at the beginning. Um, so like, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly the story of like Aline Brush McKenna working on this script. Um, I assume to some degree it was, personal but also that it was an assignment you know um but then just clearly the commitment level there is what imbues this story i think with its magic and and it is it has endured really surprisingly right it was like it actually opened the same same weekend as um superman returns oh really in 2006 <laughs> the brian singer <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> and it's just like think about which movie you care about more today like right. or which movie we we all remember better like today that um, one i saw in the theater <laughs> <laughs> all right brian uh yeah just this like there's something clearly the investment of every person who worked on this is clearly so high meryl streep's investment the cast and it's we haven't even said Anne Hathaway's name. Anne Hathaway, you were <laughs> right. great. I assume you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she, she she was perfect as yeah. an like, no, archetype. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. I feel like it goes without saying, yeah. basically. Of course. Yeah. yeah. No, clearly the commitment of everybody. This was a passion, you know, it was a passion project. It was a big studio movie. But actually when, when they ended up, after it was done, the studio was like, we were just kind of trying to make like a chick thing. <laughs> this is like a really good movie, actually. So they were originally going to release it in post-award season slump, like back in March kind mm. of deal. And they pushed it to a big summer release. And they were like, you know what? This can go up against Superman Returns. And actually it could. And that, yeah, 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 exactly. Because it was it had been executed at such a high level that it became the movie that it is so i remember clerk clerks 2 was also in the theater that uh mm. that time so you know really big contender <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh yeah brian take um yeah i think for me it's it's almost a a bigger picture kind of lesson which is in order to have a very focused first 10 pages you have to know what your thing is yeah. you know mm -hmm. and i think that's a lot of movies you see or any kind of story where it's just like here's an interesting idea but then maybe halfway through this other thing happens and then you know like this whatever and i don't really know where i'm going and it's interesting trisha to hear you say that that's kind of what the book is <laughs> like it's a little <laughs> yeah. bit more wandering and mm -hmm. stuff um so i think it's it's a cool thing we talked about it with Shaun of the dead and we're talking about it now um a lot of the best screenplays they are very focused and it doesn't mean there aren't great ideas that got left and would have been awesome scenes there's some deleted scenes out there that are incredible scenes they just didn't necessarily fit into what the movie mm -hmm. was um so yeah i think that's the big thing is is it's almost like you need to be able to, it's like saying what's the elevator pitch of your movie. It's like the first 10 pages almost is the elevator pitch of your movie, but mm -hmm. the, not the, the escalator pitch, maybe it takes a little longer. <laughs> um, but, uh, <laughs> It's a really uh, long escalator. Right, yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, one of those people movers. The yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's like you have to be able to tell people like this is what you can expect and you're going to be surprised. There are going to be another couple new characters shows up. There's going to be things you're not expecting. Otherwise, why watch the rest of the movie? Right. Yeah, exactly. um, but it is a very, it is cool to see something that because it knows what it is so well, it's able to focus down to one intro bit that's just like, here is what to expect. 
it's like an overture actually i was thinking about the term overture when you see a musical the f- overture is here's all the little melodies you're going to hear and throughout the thing and that's kind of what uh the first 10 pages of some movies are it's sort of here's everything the movie's going to be but just in little snippets well and the hilarious thing is that uh, uh Aline rush mckenna was on script notes like a couple months ago um and they were they were talking about like the me too movement and stuff uh but she was talking about how she was at a dinner with a bunch of screenwriters and they were a bunch of dudes and they were all talking about how they open their movies. Like, how do you start your scripts? How do you open your movies? And they're a bunch of big, like, studio action, you know, blockbuster kind of guys talking, according to McKenna, very pretentiously about how they approach opening their screenplays. <laughs> um, and one of them turned to her and was like, well, you don't have to worry about that in your scripts, do you? And she what? just froze because this is long after The Devil Wears Prada and and, uh, you know, oh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, all of the amazing things that she's worked on. Um, and, you know, somebody else immediately was like, don't say that to her because, you know, every film, every film, it doesn't matter what genre it is. Every film has to be thinking about how it's hooking its audience, how it's engaging us from the very beginning. And if you're and if you can figure out how to do that. It really is half the battle, it seems like. That dude doesn't really know about screenwriting. <laughs> no. like that betrays his yeah, like, Some genres don't need a hook. It's like, what? No. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Before we go, uh, what's everyone watching this week? Briefly. I'll, Alex, you start. Okay. Um, I, I'm working on a new, a new idea for a feature film script. Um, and it's kind of a... Theoretically right now, it's about like, you know, a few people isolated in a place in the middle of nowhere and so i was for research watching a couple movies um that kind of take place in that setting so i watched the hateful eight which i'd never seen mm. and it's a strange movie i uh i really enjoyed like the first half of it and then it just went it went tarantino in the way that i don't like yeah. and by the end i was like so what was that all for and so but i mean it had some great tarantino dialogue and great tension and so that was you know partly fun um but i really enjoyed uh, the beguiled which i had not yeah. seen um the original I, or the no the new the sofia coppola, coppola. Okay. and you know i'm pretty hit or miss with sofia coppola movies um but i this might be my favorite of hers uh i really really liked it and it just it did so much with like it's just this plantation house in the south with a few women and colin farrell and just the tension of the whole first half of the movie is like so like you can cut it you know, with a knife. It's amazing. Um, so that was a really inspiring movie of just like you can do so much with the right characters, the right kind of different value systems embodied by the characters and having them all stuck in the same place. You can do a lot with it. So yeah. a few look- women in Colin Farrell does sound tense. Yeah. <laughs> it's very tense. Yeah. You know, it's an all women's like boarding school. And then you introduce Colin Farrell. Problems are going to come up. So many problems. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah, I recommend it. It's it's kind of hard to find. You have to like buy it. I think, um, like on iTunes and stuff. But it's it's really good. Yeah. Um, I've lately gotten obsessed. I've watched it twice now. Um, I'm watching all kinds of other things, but I really want to recommend this movie called Never Going Back. And it's this movie. It was an indie movie this year, uh, directed, written, and directed by Augustine Frizzell. Um, who I wasn't familiar with super, but she's the spouse of David Lowry, um, filmmaker made like a ghost story. Um, anyway, it's, it's sort of a, it's sort of a, like a stoner comedy, like almost a gross out stoner comedy, which I already have to like go back on my thing where I said vomit was never funny because there's vomit in this movie. And it's really, really funny. I don't know why I love this movie as much as I do. I don't know why. I, it's so good. It's sort of like, you know, sort of a Pineapple Express style mm-hmm. stoner like comedy mm-hmm. of errors. But it's these two teenage girls like in, in Nowheresville in Texas. And they just that sounds get, great. Oh, my gosh. It's so good. <laughs> um, it's just their relationship is really interestingly written and played by the young actresses who are amazing. You know, they're, they're playing teenagers. They're in their 20s, but they have amazing chemistry. And it's sort of a buddy comedy, but it never, the screenplay never really pits these two, like, teenage girls against each other. It's always just, like, them versus the world, but the world is, like, such a disaster for them. Um, and they're so hapless. Like, they're so... They want so badly to be, like, good and for everything to work out. And just, like, the hits keep on coming. They can't win. And 
It's so funny. Um, What's it called again? Never Going Back. Never Going Back. Yeah, I've watched it twice. I'm probably going to watch it a couple more times. (laughs) Well, because there's people I want to show it to, you know, or it's just like, I'll watch it with you again. I don't care. So, yeah, check it out. Um, I uh, just watched, as many people have, The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix, which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've been watching um, American Horror Story, which is a very, like, uh, guilty pleasure kind of like it's silly and you don't expect it to be good and so watching starting to watch like another like horror series I was like okay it's going to be full of scares and it's going to be creepy whatever but it's a drama like it's a it's a drama about this family and what they're going through but then it's also a horror show and like there's all sorts of like creepy stuff going on and it's just the the jump scares are really good but then even there are episodes where there's like almost nothing scary happens but you're just like still really engaged with who the family is. Trisha never watch it but I'm never with uh, yeah uh, <laughs> but uh but it's really cool um and uh i also saw bohemian rhapsody which was fun um but is kind of not a a drama like it's just i think the word fairy tale has been thrown around a lot in reviews where it's like it's like anyway i think i might be gay yeah i know okay like bye and then it's like hey i'm dying oh that sucks but let's do a show you know and it's just sort of like it's like here uh my my girlfriend put it great she said it's the instagram version of freddie mercury's life a lot of people have loved it so yeah it's it's a lot of of fun it's a really fun movie it's just sort of like not really the story right if you love queen music you probably will find some fun in it right There's also a weird thing from a filmmaking standpoint. The last 15 minutes of the movie is literally just like their Live Aid performance, which you can go on YouTube and watch. And it's like, it's weird to be like, why am I watching a recreation of this when I could go watch the actual thing? But it's such an interesting filmmaking uh, thing from a filmmaking perspective because it's like, well, you're watching it through the eyes of this character that you've been following and what it means to him and what mm. it means to everybody and blah, blah, blah. And of course, there's like big sweeping shots that you don't get in the in the <laughs> original film thing. But it's just, it's a really interesting choice to be like, we're just going to show you a thing that already exists mm-hmm. on video, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. from a different perspective. Hmm. Totally. Interesting. Yeah. What are you watching, Michael? <laughs> uh, I started the other night Maniac on mm. Netflix. Okay. Uh, just the first episode, so I don't really... Uh, I feel like so far it has the pieces to either be amazing or terrible. And so I'm really excited to see which way it goes. But it's like, yeah, I, I felt like I was watching like a Wes Anderson movie meets like a Spike Jones movie. I don't know. It's interesting. Whoa. So I'm curious to see uh, where it goes. But I've also then be, been rewatching The Office. And sure. it's just it's still amazing. <laughs> I just want to report back. It's still <laughs> uh, super funny. I still love it as just such a great example of how comedy can lower your defense mechanisms so that then when they hit you with the drama and like the Jim and Pam, will they, won't they, it like it hurts so good. Cause it's like... You mean Tim and Don? <laughs> oh, you're watching the American office. Yeah. Uh... The office. <laughs> Sorry. I just had to be that pretentious yeah. jerk for a second. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm going to kick you under the table. <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway, so the office is good. Sorry. I threw you off. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, Tim and Don, what's that from? Oh, the, the annoying office. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> I feel like it's not that good. I don't know. We'll, wow. I'll have to revisit it. Me and British comedy as we've established. Put a, yeah. Let's put a pin in that one. Yeah. Get, get us out of here, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Hey, guys. Michael here. Make sure to subscribe to Beyond the Screenplay wherever you get your podcasts. And feel free to hit us up on Twitter with any feedback you have, what you want more of, what you want less of, whatever it is, we'd love to hear it. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode.